to Chapter 5 Chapter Podcast, going through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Baby Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 162nd episode of the Nautic Cast titled On the Road Again, an analysis of a Storm of Swords Aria 1, 2, and 3, which Arya Stark is chased. Then she chases, then she picks up some vegetables in the garden, meets the Brother Without Banners, and of course reunites with Harwin before she is chased yet again. There's a lot of chasing and counter-chasing going on in these three Arya chapters, isn't there? That's why we're doing them all in one. We know we've been uh, leaving Arya Stark alone this far into Storm of Swords. We know we're going to get you know Child Protective Services called on us and <laughs> get Arya taken away from the podcast for all time for skipping over her chapters, but we're going to be doing all three of her first chapters in Storm of Swords together here, and then we're going to be proceeding on, skipping over, obviously, where Arya 3 is chronologically in the book, and next checking in with her with Arya 4. Yes, I am excited to get to all Arya chapters, but I am glad to be finally with our girl Arya, because she's awesome. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our Not a Small Council, our Hand of the King Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Timbob, Troubleshooter of Systems, and Designer of Circuit Boards. Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N. Sir Keith J., Master Whispers. Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws. Archmaster Jume, Heel of the Lesser Poxes. Ragged Michael, War of the North. Nelson Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone. Scarlet, the Other Red Woman, and Mistress Whispers. Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, War of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of the Banefort, and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the Gym That Was Promised. Lord Jake assisted to the Head of the King. Lady Zena Valyrian. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur and Prince Rigor Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club. His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B. Lawrence, Prince of Dorne. Kelly, Warden of the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs. Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds. The Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden. Lady Stephanie. Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, Sir Sorcedelica, Sugar Tits Dent, the Trog Delight Warrior, Lord Pencha for Nostalgia, Queer Alex Beyonce's Favorite Sand, Herald of Sharon, Batter, Ambassador of Chromatica, Exalter of Black Lives, and Defender of Trans Lives, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies and General Dems, and the Not a Cast, Non Binary, Not an Army. Haldover, the Way for T.Well, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H Town, Veneris of House Golgarian, the First of Her Name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overworld, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee the Great, Game of Thrones, Portress of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kings, Blender Paints, Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion, the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kim, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh No, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Marshall Harrison, Absent Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave Rob Stark, the Cadaver King, and Horror of Harren Hall, Hold Up, the Holder of Cups, Sir Tim, the Knight Who is Guided by Voices, Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dana, Prince Rigor, Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Part 2, Lady Anna, the Lovely Castellan, Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Squire Matt S., Future Matt S., the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms, Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Bax, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Lady Ivory Dane, Aspiring Noble Author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Wardens of the South, and the Patron of Freewheeling Bisexuals, Lady Jamisa, She Who Suggests That Coconuts Migrate, Lord Christoph of Arendelle, Official Ice Master and Deliverer, the Valiant Pungent Reindeer King, Keeper of Feisty Pants, and Prince Consort to His Ginger Sweet Love, Queen Anna, Lord Sir Septon Brothers, Sir Grizzly Adams, the King's Justice War, the Kingswood, and Sheriff of the Seven Kingdoms, Sir Kel, Contractor in Charge of Continually Extending the Small Council Table, Lord Anonymous II, Lord Tyler, the Prince that Promises to Wait Patiently for the Winds of Winter, Lord D.B., Sister Winter, Hopeful Romantic and Unrepentant Shipper, Lord Monsef, and the Severed Head of a Targaryen Prince Rotting on the Council Walls. Thank you to all of our Not-A-Small Counselors. Thank you, Counselors, as always. 
and our spoiler warning, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Dunkin' Devils, histories, interviews, the Windsor sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from True Hedge Knight, Sir Andrew Labradork of the Isle of Feces, a sworn sword patron, who asks... I've been considering the faceless men's religion of worshipping the many-faced god, with the gods of death around Planetos being considered different aspects or representations of that god. So far, so weird, but then your episodes on the Forsaken got me thinking about their relationship with Euron. The link between the faceless men and Euron is mentioned only once that I can think of, but it's a significant moment in the full introduction to him in the narrative, the assassination of Balon. Euron's motivations for using a faceless man to kill Balin are shrouded in mystery, but behind that I wonder if there's a lot more to the story. Euron is clearly an architect and bringer of death and potentially apocalypse through his own action, and potentially bringing the others down on Westeros. But I wonder if he could be considered a kind of messiah to the faceless men as a servant of the Great Other, should that entity exist. Has he tricked or manipulated them into serving his cause? And that's, yeah, that's a very interesting question. I'll, I'll, I'll take a run at it first, just because yes, he's, he's my boy. That's Euron Greyjoy. <laughs> It is, it is definitely interesting that Euron and the Faceless Men have some ideological overlap, I guess you could say. Hmm. Like when Euron is introduced before the King's Moot and gives that whole big monologue about how I've been all over the world and I've heard the prayers to every god and the only answer any of them gives is you know, silence and death. That does sound a lot like what the Faceless Men say to Arya. And uh, it's in the same book. It's in A Feast for Crows, the title that kind of connects to Euron with uh, his Crow's Eye nickname. And the overall kind of theme of, of death and decay and rot that runs through that book finds a, a very specific outpouring with the faceless men in Bravos. And as Sir Andrew Labrador says, there is a, a literal connection between the two of them in that Euron appears to have hired a faceless man to kill his, his uh, big brother Balin Greyjoy. All of that is really suggestive. I don't know if there is a, a action-oriented plot-related you know, connection between Euron and the Faceless Men. I don't think they're necessarily going to turn out to be working for him or him for them. This is something I mentioned with the Faceless Men before. I think they're really compelling in terms of their position in Arya's arc, and there's a lot of really cool imagery and dialogue surrounding them, but they don't really fit in the world building of A Song of hmm. Ice and Fire, and any attempt to make them do so kind of comes to nothing. A lot of the theories about what they might do or can do, it just kind of runs up against the problem, is that they're basically kind of just vaguely all-powerful. And it seems like they could probably do anything if they wanted to, especially <laughs> if they really were behind the Doom of Illyria. But they're kind of just not doing things, as far as we can tell. And I think one of the reasons Euron might be the way he is in the story is George trying to weaponize some of this stuff from the East. Because as he says, the story is ultimately about Westeros, and we also see this with like the Undying of Karth, who seem really, really, really powerful, but also just don't do anything with their power, and just kind of <laughs> sitting around getting high. And I know the Faceless Men are out there killing people, but they're not doing all that much more in terms of the big picture than the Undying. And maybe part of what's going on with Euron is, is George needed a character to interject some of these elements directly into the plot bloodstream, so to speak. Hmm. And I think that might be what's going on there more than a, a literal connection. What do you think? I think those are excellent points. I, I think I'm, I am not the faceless man or you're an expert of on this podcast, but I, I do find it interesting that and this is something we brought up before uh, about how the nobility and what they're doing to Westeros is a representation of what the others plan to do and what they did do in the past during the long hmm. night to the people of Westeros. Because I, yeah, think there, okay. I think there is an aspect about the Faceless Men and Euron, which are very much representative of what the others are doing. And, and while I, I don't think that the Faceless Men are, 
the servants of the great other in terms of like their, their thralls of them or their swearing to to him or if, if that entity exists I do think that mm-hmm. they do serve a similar ideological cause to the others in the same way that Euron, whether he is aware or unaware of it, is serving a much stronger ideological cause to the others, given the fact of causing all of the destruction in the world, and and also, as we'll likely find out in the Winds Winter, blowing the Horn of Jorman and bringing down the wall, and thus really serving serving the others. So I, I, I think that there's a strong ideological connection to them, even if there's not necessarily one connection of that they're working directly for that the faces men are working directly for the others or working for Euron or that either of them are working in, in cahoots with, with the others. I think some of that is, is a little bit uh, far-fetched. I, I do think it's really interesting that the faceless men do end up they, they are so powerful and yet they are so limited in how they exercise their power. You know, what are they doing in Bravos? And I mean, granted, Arya is, is not is only an acolyte or not even acolyte. She's a novice. And when she starts with the faceless man and beca- eventually becomes an acolyte at the end of A Dance with Dragons. But they're like killing like insurance salesmen. Like that that's what the faceless men are, <laughs> right? are, are, are doing. Like this is this is the, the grand mysterious religious order that is embracing death <laughs> are, are killing, you know, low level door to door salesmen. I mean, it seems it seems a little, little, little low, like you could be shooting a lot higher. And of course, we do get that reference um, that Littlefinger makes in the Game of Thrones before Ned closes the door. I think it's it's Ned's eighth chapter in, in a Game of Thrones. Like, oh, we should hire the faceless men to kill, kill Daenerys Targaryen. So it is clear that the faceless men do have a do have higher value targets that they probably put their more experienced people on as opposed to Arya Stark. And at the same time, it does feel like their power is limited. And and I do think that does flow from the fact that George needs a mysterious organization that kills people, that can kind of kill people at random and at large, and also does not want to make them too OP so that they could basically kind of run the world through the amount of death and destruction that they can do. Of course, they do kill Balin Greyjoy, or it's very likely kill Balin Greyjoy. I think that is uh, more than alluded to in, in A Feast for Crows, and Euron all but confirms it in The Forsaken. So they do do stuff, but are they connected necessarily? I don't think so, but I, I could see them being ideologically connected more than anything else. Agreed, yeah. I think that's that's the thing. I think the Faceless Men, first and foremost, function as, as a perfect kind of black hole for the middle of Arya's story with the relationship to death and violence and identity. And the further I think you get away from that, I think the vaguer and more hand-wavy it gets. <laughs> I think that's, that's, that's their core function. And uh, I think, you know, as in the show, even if it's handled maybe a little more gracefully, I think once Arya leaves the Faceless Men behind, that's it for the Faceless Men in the story. I think, you know, I, Arya kind of will carry those themes forward and it's not going to be like we'll get to the end and you know there's suddenly a faceless man assassin who's going to attack the small council and try to kill bran or something you know i think that's that's going to be it for their larger function on the whole agreed so thank you so much to true hedge knight sir andrew labradork of the isle of faces for the question if you'd like to ask us questions we must answer here on the not a cast podcast you're welcome to become a sworn sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash not a cast a-s-o-i-a-f where you can also get show notes, merch, access to the Nada Slack, mini-sodes that we do before uh, every weekly episode, uh, monthly, <clears throat> monthly bonus episodes, like our recent episode on David Lynch's 1984 Dune, and shout-outs at the start and end of every episode as a small council or high lady and high lord patron. Yes, indeed. Our patron and our patrons are fantastic, excellent people. And yes, that Dune episode is especially poignant because I just watched the 2021 version of Dune. So, yeah. Great movie. God, I love that movie. But the uh, David Lynch version, 
you'll have to listen to that episode to, to see my take on that one. <laughs> but mm-hmm. enough. Uh, yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh huh. Is correct. But enough about Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Nauticast. A S O I A F. When we last left Arya Stark, she had escaped from Harrenhal, committed her first, but not last murder. Let's find out how Arya and her companions are doing out in the woods in this synopsis of a Storm of Swords Arya 1, 2, and 3. The sky was as black as the walls of Harrenhal behind them, and the rain fell soft and steady, muffling the sound of their horses' hooves and running down their faces. Well, 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 naysayers, we did not forget about Arya Stark. Please submit your emails of apology Directed to me personally at notacastasof at gmail.com for accusing us of skipping Arya Stark's Storm of Swords chapters. We did not skip them. We're doing three of them this week. Arya and the boys moved through the dark woods to the sound of wolves howling, knowing that Roose Bolton had probably sent men after them. Arya judges that the Boltons would know fairly soon who had killed that guardsman. Of course, Roose wouldn't come himself. Steel Shanks Bolton might come or the Bloody Mumbers. That would be bad if the Bloody Mumbers showed up. Arya knows the mummers would cut off her hands and feet for running, but so far she hadn't seen anyone. The boys follow Arya's directions as she has the map. The rain falls on and off as Arya feels like maybe she should be more afraid than she was. She's only ten after all. The rain had washed the guard's blood off her fingers. She wore a sword across her back. Wolves were prowling to the dark like lean gray shadows and Arya Stark was unafraid. Fear. Cuts deeper than swords, she whispered under her breath, the words that Ciro Ferella taught her, and Jack and words too, Valor Mogulis. Arya moves them at a steady pace up and down rolling hills. Gendry's horse loses its footing and dumps Gendry on the ground, but Gendry's not hurt, thankfully. They come upon wolves feasting on a doe, and Arya tells everyone to back off slowly. They also come up to a burned village, moving through the burned hovels and past all the corpses. Arya repeats her prayer of the name she's going to kill, ending with Valor Morgolis and touching Jekin's coin every day and night. The next day is a, quote, a day without dawn, in that it's just all gray all around without sight of the sun. They eat some stale breakfast, and Gendry asks where they're going. They're going north? Does Arya know which way is north? Yeah, she points in her direction. How does she know this? Because the moss is growing on one side of the tree. That way is south. Why do they want to go north? Because they want to get to the Trident. They can follow the Trident up to River Run. Hot Pie looks at a map and asks which castle's River Run. River Run. Arya points it out, and Hot Pie is curious at Arya's ability to read and why they'd want to go to River Run. We'll be safe once we reach River Run, Arya said. We will? Why? Because River Run is my grandfather's castle and my brother Rob will be there, she wanted to say. She bit her lip and rolled up the map. We just will, but only if we get there. She was the first one back in the saddle. It made her feel bad to hide the truth from Hot Pie, but she did not trust him with her secret. Gendry knew, but that was different. Gendry had his own secret, though even he didn't seem to know what it was. Arya picks up the pace, galloping along the hilly terrain. Occasionally she sends Gendry and Arya, occasionally she sends Gendry and Hot Pie ahead, while she doubles back to try and confuse the trail. She thinks they're moving too slow, and then she sees wolves. She ahoos them for a bit, and the big wolf howls back. Hot Pie starts to complain about how sore his ass is and how tired he is. Arya looked at Gendry. If he falls off, who do you think will find him first? The wolves or the mummers? The wolves, said Gendry. Better noses. Hot Pie opened his mouth and closed it. He did not fall off his horse. The rain began again a short time later. They still had not seen so much as a glimpse of the sun. It was growing colder, and pale white mists were threading between the pines and blowing across the bare, burned fields. 
Gendry's having a hard time too, but Arya knows he's too stubborn to complain. Gendry and Hot Pie were city boys after all and didn't grow up riding horses like Arya did out in that there country. She knows that she would be better off alone, but she won't leave them. They're her pack, and she won't let Roose Bolton take her or her pack, even if Roose Bolton was Rob Stark's bannerman. He frightens Arya. They get to the river, which Hot Pie thinks is the Trident. Arya, though, doesn't think so, as this is a small river. They had really not come far enough to reach the Trident. But Hot Pie insists that this is the Trident, given how far they'd ridden and how they hadn't stopped. Genry asks to see the map, and Arya unrolls it. She thinks there's some place closer to the Heron Hall than the Trident. They have miles and miles to go. The party argues for a bit about where they are, but Arya makes sure the decision to cross but Arya makes the decision to cross this river and keeps heading north. She's not sure if they follow her until they, she hears them splashing up behind her. They cross another shallower river, which Arya insists also isn't the Trident, to this time no one's argument. As the sun goes down, Hot Pie wants to stop to make a fire. No, Arya and Gendry yell together. Okay, but maybe they can sleep. Hot Pie is blisters, you see. Nope, they move on. But even as they move on, Arya feels exhausted. She needs sleep, but she's afraid of finding Shagwo, Urswick, Rorge, Biter, and Septon Ute standing over them when she, when she wakes. So she rides on, but she finds her eyes drooping. And suddenly Gendry is waking her, telling her that her horse was riding in a circle. She needs to actually sleep. Gendry will take the first watch. She asks after Hot Pie, and Gendry points out that he's already passed out with a wedge of cheese in his hand, probably, probably falling asleep between bites, which is actually something I've done before in the past. More on that later. Probably not. So Arya decides to stop arguing and get some rest. She lays down, takes her sword out to lay next to her, and starts her prayer. Sir Gregor, she whispered, yawning. Johnson, Oliver, Raph the Sweetling, the Tickler, and, and the Tickler, the Hound. Her dreams were red and savage. The mummers were in them, four at least. A pale Lysani and a dark, brutal axeman from Ib. The scarred, Dothraki horse lord called Igo, an adornishment whose name she never knew. On and on they came, riding through the rain in rusting mail and wet leather, swords and axe clanking against their saddles. They thought they were hunting her. She knew with all the strange, sharp certainty of dreams, but they were wrong. She was hunting them. Arya dreams that she's a wolf. Which wolf, you ask? Hmm, I wonder. Arya can smell the fear in the horses and men. That Lysenny's mount rears and the mummers yell as the wolves descend on them in the dark and rain. The battle is short as fleeing bloody mummers die with wolves at their throats. The only one who holds his ground is the Dothraki, bloody mummer with bells in his hair. Filled with rage, Nymeria leapt onto his back, knocking him headfirst from the saddle. Her jaws locked on his arm as they fell, her teeth sinking through the leather and its wool and soft flesh. When they landed, she gave a savage jerk with her head and ripped the limb loose from his shoulders. Exulting, she shook it back and forth in her mouth, scattering the warm red droplets amidst the cold black rain. Whew. Sometime later, Arya is in a garden looking for vegetables when she hears singing. Arya hopes it's not the Bloody Mummers or Boltons. It was unfair if it was them because they had finally made it to the safety of the Trident. Only, why would the Mummers be singing? The song, came, the song came drifting up the river from somewhere beyond the little rise to the east. Off to Goldtown to see the fair maid. Hey ho, hey ho. Arya and Hot Pie can hear the singing, but Gendry is asleep. The man continues to sing, and Arya hears a wood harp playing too. Arya tells Hot Pie to wake Gendry up as the man continues to sing. The voices get closer, and Arya tells Hot Pie that they need to hide. But where? Arya tells Gendry and Hot Pie to take the horses behind the cottage. She's going up a tree. She'll kill them if they come snooping. 
Everyone goes to their hiding spots, and Arya prays that the old gods of the trees will hear her prayer. But then a horse whickers, and the man stops singing and asks if that was a horse. Then Arya hears a second voice. Another man replies that there's something behind the wall. What might it be? A bear? Or a wolf? Or a lion? Anyways, the archer should be ready to shoot some shafts over the wall, and whatever's hiding will come running. But, but what if it's an honest man or woman? An honest man wouldn't come out and show his face. Only an outlaw would skulk and hide. Aye, that's so. Go on and loose your shafts then. Arya springed her feet. Don't! She showed them her sword. There were three, she saw. Only three. Syria could fight more than three, and she had Hot Pie and Gendry to stand with her, maybe. But they're boys. But they are boys, and these are men. Arya sees that it is indeed three men. A 50-year-old singer, a big soldier type with bad teeth, and a young archer. The singer tells Arya to put up the sword as Angai the archer will put arrows through her quickly. Arya finds that assertion dubious and tells the man to head on down the road. She will not kill them if they do as she says. The men laugh at Arya and tell her to put the sword away, and they'll get Arya to someplace safe. She'll even get a hot meal. Can't have girls out here by themselves, but she's not by herself. Gendry and Hot Pie come springing out from behind the cottage into action. The singer comments that now it's three. Where do they steal those horses from, he wonders. Arya says they didn't steal, but the singer then asks what their names are. Hot Pie merely answers that he's Hot Pie. Are I in good name for you? The man smiled. It's not every day I meet a lad with such a tasty name. And what would your friends be called? Mutton chop and squab? Gendry scowled from down his saddle. Why should I tell you my name? I haven't heard yours. Well, as to that, I'm Tom, I'm Tom of Seven Streams. But Tom Seven Streams is what they call me. You're Thomas Sevens. This great lad with the brown teeth is Lem, short for Lemon Cloak. It's yellow, you see, and Lem's a sour sword. And young fellow, me lad over there, that's Angai, or archers, we like to call him. Lem Lemon Cloak then asks who they are, and Arya says she's Squab. Gendry is the Bull. Interesting names, they comment. Anyways, did you escape from Lord Bolton's kitchens? Arya is uneasy at this question and asks how they know that. Because Arya is wearing the Bolton badge under her cloak? Arya had forgotten that for an instant. Beneath her cloak, she still wore her fine page's doublet and the flayed man of the dreadfort sewn on her breast. Don't call me little one. Why not, said Lem. You're little enough. I'm bigger than I was. I'm not a child. Children didn't kill people. And Arya had. Hot Pie says they're not a part of Team Bolton. They were at Harrenhal before Roos came. So they're on Team Lannister? No, they're, they're nobody's men. Who, who are these jabronis? Anga, the usher, said, We are king's men. Arya frowned. Which king? King Robert, said Lem in his yellow cloak. That old drunk, Gendry said scornfully, He's dead. Some boar killed him. Everyone knows that. Aye, lads, said Thomas Sevenstreet, and more's the pity. He plucked a sad cord from his harp. Arya has doubts that these are kingsmen. They look an awful fucking lot like outlaws. Kingsmen have horses, after all. But Hot Pie is less suspicious, stating that they're on their way to River Run, to Arya's annoyance. Well, it's a long ride, Thomas Seven says. Maybe they want a hot meal at an inn before they head on up to River Run? Arya is sorely tempted by this, but she knows not to trust these guys. She asks how far the inn is. Two miles? Maybe a leak. They have friends at the inn. Friends? Yes. Friends? Yes. Friends. The inn keeps name Sharna, husband and a boy. All Arya, Gendry, and Hot Pie need to do is bring their stolen vegetables from Old Pate's garden into the inn for dinner. Arya is outraged. She didn't steal. Oh, is this farm yours, Arya? Tom knew Old Pate. Here, Angai, show Arya where he's buried. The archer's hand moved quicker than Arya would have believed. His shaft went hissing past her head within an inch of her ear and buried itself in the trunk of the willow behind her. 
By then, the bowman had a second arrow notched and drawn. She thought she understood what Ciro meant by quick as a snake and smooth as, sil as summer silk, but now she knew she hadn't. But now she knew she hadn't. The arrow thrummed behind her like a bee. You miss, she said. More full if you think so, said Angai. They go where I send him. That they do, agreed Lem Lemon Cloak. Arya realizes that she doesn't have a chance of fighting them, so she reluctantly tells them that they'll go to the inn. But the men need to walk in front of them. Sure, whatever. Tom tells Angai to pick up the arrows. They're not going to be needing them after all. So Arya sheathes her sword, tells Hot Pie to grab the cabbages and carrots, and they're off to the inn. Thomas Seven sings the whole time. They're on their way to the inn. He asks if they know any songs, as Angai's songs are marching songs a hundred verses long and rather fucking tedious. Singing is stupid, said Arya. Singing makes noise. We heard you a long way off. We could have killed you. Tom smiles, said he did not think so. <laughs> there are worse things than dying with a song on your lips. If there were wolves, if there were wolves about hereabouts, we'd know about it, growls them, or lions. These are our woods. We never knew we were there, said Gendry. No, lad, don't, you shouldn't be so certain of that, said Tom. Sometimes a man knows more than he says. Hot Pie knows a song. It's the bear and the maiden fair. Tom starts to play it on the harp and Hot Pie sings and Arya is shocked that Hot Pie can sing well. He never did anything well besides bake Hot Pies. They cross the stream. Angai brings down a duck with an arrow and Lem retrieves it, complaining about being in the muck and water. Maybe, maybe they can get the duck cooked with lemons. But they carry on with Hot Pie and Tom singing. The music makes the trip seem short, and they come upon the inn, a friendly inn. It has an arbor, apple trees, a garden, a dock, and hay, a boat. Maybe they can take the boat to River Run. Maybe. But Arya doesn't know much about sailing. Neither does Gendry. The party dismounts their horses, and Arya notices that there are no horses in the stable, but there is fresh manure. Gendry volunteers to guard the horses while Arya and Hot Pie eat. But Thomas Seven says they don't need to do that. It's not like they're going to steal the horses, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Gendry is staying. The painted sign above the door showed a picture of some old king on his knees. Inside was the common room where a very tall, ugly woman with a knobby chin stood with her hands on her hips, glaring. Don't just stand there, boy, she snapped. Or are you a girl? Either one, you're blocking my door. Get in or get out. Lamb, what did I tell you about my floor? You're all mud. Whoa, wait a second. The inn seems real familiar to me now that I think about it. Hmm. Anyways, Angai presents the duck to the woman, and the woman calls for her husband to come up. Up the stairs comes a short man with a lumpy face and yellow skin. Sharna commands husband to prepare the duck for a future meal. Angai asks if they have lemons, and Sharna's like, uh, no, dude, this isn't Dorn. They have no lemons or lemon trees to prepare the duck. Anyways, they're not going to cook the duck now. They're about to have rabbit. Either grilled if they want it quick, or stewed if they are interested in the rabbit tasting somewhat good. Arya offers, Arya offers up the cabbages and carrots, and they are eagerly accepted. Ale is then served, as the water tastes like dead men. Tom sings a song about a plain innkeep's wife to Lem's annoyance, who just wishes that Tom would shut the fuck up instead of risk their, them not getting dinner. Arya asks if Tom, Hot Pie can sail a boat, but Hot Pie is too enamored of the ale he's drinking and the rabbit he's eating to hear her. Angai toasts the king, and Lem says, yeah, all twelve of them. Husband comes to the front door that says there are strange horses in the stables. Yes, three better horses than the ones husband gave away. Husband dropped the vegetables on a table annoyed. I never gave them away. I sold them for a good price and got us a skiff as well. Anyways, you lot were supposed to get them back. I knew they were outlaws, Arya thought, listening. Her hand went under the table to touch the hilt of her dagger and make sure it was still there. If they try to rob us, they'll be sorry. Lem says the three husbands told them they were coming never actually came their way. Besides, husband could take them all, right? Not by himself with the boy. Sharna was off playing midwife to a woman that either Angai or Tom impregnated. 
But Arya smells food from the kitchen, and it makes her hungry. Bread is served, but it's not very good. Hard, thick, and burned. Hot Pie says they overdeated the dough. But then Tom sits across from Arya and puts a piece of paper in front of Arya. She looked at it suspiciously. What is it? Three golden dragons. We need to buy those horses. Arya looked at him warily. There are horses? Meaning you stole them from yourselves. Is that it? No shame in that girl. War makes thieves of many honest folk. Tom tapped the fold of parchment with his finger. I'm paying you a handsome price. More than any horse is worth, if truth be told. Hot Pie says these aren't gold dragons, only writing. True, but it's a coupon worth the price in gold. After the war is done, they can present this to the king, and the king will repay them. Arya pushed back from the table and got to her feet. You're no kingsmen. You're robbers. If you'd ever met a true robber, you'd know that they do not pay, even in paper. It's not for us you take the horses for, child. It's for the good of the realm, so that we can get more about more quickly and fight the fights that need fighting. The king's fights. Would you deny the king? Everyone watches Arya, and Arya knows they're going to take the horses regardless. So she tries to barter. She'll take the skiff instead of the paper in exchange for their horses. They just need to show her how to work it. Tom and Angai start to laugh at this, and even though Arya wants to scream at them, she ends up smiling. But then Gendry shouts that riders are coming. A dozen soldiers. Hot Pie jumps up, but the men act nonchalant. There's food coming. No reason to be spilling beer everywhere. They're with the king's men. Arya tries to grab her sword, but Lem catches her wrist. Again, Arya thought. It's happening again. Like it happened at the village with Chiswick and Raph of the mountain that rides. They were going to steal her sword and turn her back into a mouse. Arya's free hand closed around her tankard and she swung it at Lem's face. The yell sloshed over the rim and splashed into his eyes and she heard his nose break and saw the spurt of blood. When he roared, his hands went to his face and she was free. Run, she screamed, bolting. Lem catches her quickly and pulls her off her feet and tells her to stop moving. Gendry tries to help Arya, but Tom steps in the front of him with a dagger in hand. It was too late anyways. The horses were outside and then the men come through the door. A Tyroshi with a green beard, two crossbowmen, a one-eyed man in a rusty pot helm, a spearman, an old man with a limp, a bravosi sellsword, and wait a second. Harwin? Arya whispered. It was... Under the beard and the tangled hair was the face of Holland's son who used to lead her pony around the yard, ride a quintain with John and Rob, and drink too much on feast days. He was thinner, harder somehow, and at Winterfell he had never worn a beard. But it was him, her father's man, Harwin! Squirming, she threw herself forward, trying to wrench free of Lem's iron grip. It's me, she shouted. Harwin, it's me. Don't you know me, don't you? The tears came and she found herself weeping like a baby, just like some stupid little girl. Harwin, it's, it's me. Harwin looks at Arya and asks how Arya knows her. Did she serve Lord Bolton or something? For a moment, she did not know how to answer. She'd had so many names. Had she only dreamed Arya Stark? I'm a girl, she sniffed. I, I was Lord Bolton's cupbearer, but he was going to leave me for the goats. So I ran off with Gendry and Hot Pie. You have to know me. You used to leave my pony when I was little. His eyes went wide. Gods be good, he said in a choked voice. Arya Underfoot, Lem, let go of her. She broke my nose. Lem dumped her unceremoniously to the floor. Who in seven hells is she supposed to be? The hand's daughter. Harwin went to one knee before her. Arya Stark of Winterfell. Man, that passage always gets me emotional. I even feel myself tearing up right now. So great. Later, Arya and everyone are on the road. And then Arya tells Gendry that they're moving in the wrong direction because of the moss in the trees. They're going south, not north. Ah, well, that's because they're following the road. But Arya knows that they've been going south all day and all day yesterday. Maybe they're lost? Doubtful. Lem and Tom have been here for years, but Arya insists that they're going the wrong way. But Gendry remained stubborn, and Gendry was Arya's only friend here now that Hot Pie was gone. 
Wait, wait, Hot Pie is gone? Yep. Sharna had taken him in and he decided to stay on. Maybe Arya will come visit Hot Pie after the war is done? Arya didn't know if the war would ever be done, but she had nodded. I'm sorry I beat you the one time, she said. Hot Pie was stupid and craven, but he'd been with her all the way from King's Landing, and she'd gotten used to him. I broke your nose. You broke Lem's too. You broke Lem's too, Hot Pie grinned. That was good. Lem didn't think so, said Arya glumly. Then it was time to go. When Hot Pie asked if he might kiss Milady's hand, she punched his shoulder. Don't call me that. You're Hot Pie and I'm Ari. Well, I'm not Hot Pie here. Sharna just calls me boy. Same as she calls the other boy. It's going to be awful confusing. Arya misses Hot Pie now, but Harwin had made up for Hot Pie's absence. Arya tells Harwin what happened down at King's Landing, how it said Holland had died by the stables, how Yorin had helped him escape, how Yorin had helped her escape from King's Landing, how they fled Harrenhal. She did leave out the part about killing the guardsmen and also about Jack and Agar and the three deaths he'd given her. She couldn't tell Harwin that. It would be like telling her own father how far she'd fallen. In response, Harwin told Arya what happened to Ned's men after they departed King's Landing. There were only six Winterfell men still alive after Gregor Clegane ambushed them on Tywin's orders. The weird thing is that Jaime wasn't aware of Tywin's orders and had acted alone against Ned and Jory back in King's Landing. With Jory dead and Ned wounded, he sent Beric Dondarrion ahead with 20 Stark and 20 Dondarrion men along with 80 others. But Gregor Clegane was waiting for them at the Mummer's Ford and ambushed them. Gregor killed Raymond Derry and others died all around them. They started with 120 men, but by the end of the battle, they had only 40 left, and Lord Beric was very badly wounded. Thoros Amir helped to heal Beric from his wounds, but afterwards Beric had a new purpose. They were going to keep fighting, but against whom? Robert died then, and then Cersei's kid was king. Tywin became hand. The whole world went topsy-turvy. Some wanted to yield, but Beric refused to surrender. We were, we were still king's men, he said, and these were the king's peoples. The lions were savaging. If we could not fight for Robert, we would fight for them until every man of us was dead. And so we did, but we fought something queer. But as we fought, something queer happened. For every man we lost, two showed up to take his place. A few were knights of squires of gentle birth, but most were common men, field hands and fiddlers and innkeepers, servants and shoemakers, even two septons. Men of all sorts and women too. Children, dogs. Wait, dogs joined up? Yep, mean-ass dogs. Ari wishes she had a mean-ass dog, one that would kill lions. She did have a direwolf one time. Could a direwolf kill a lion? It rains that afternoon, but Arya and the outlaws find shelter everywhere. In abandoned villages that turned out not to be abandoned, they eat food and drink ale that the people had stored up for them. Arya hears from one of the villagers that men were hunting for the Kingslayer. But he's in a riverrun jail. Nope, escaped. This freaks Arya out, and everyone argues about whether it's true or not. Greenbeard says they should tell Thoros so he can look in the flames so the brotherhood can find Jamie and hang him. No, no, they wouldn't hang him. Well, not without a trial first. Everyone laughs and Thomas Seven decides it's time to sing. The brothers of the kings where they were an outlaw band. The forest was a castle, but they roomed across the land. No man's gold was safe from them or any maid's hand. Oh, the brothers of the kings would band that fearsome outlaw band. Arya listens to the song, but then falls asleep. She dreams of Winterfell, but it's not a really nice dream. Instead, the walls were always ahead of her, receding from her, and wolves were all around her. When she looks at them, she tastes blood. The next day, they keep moving south, and Arya says they're really heading in the wrong direction this time. She's absolutely sure of it. It's not the moss this time, it's the sun. Arya pulls out her map and shows them that river runs between two rivers. And now they're away from the triad. Well, yeah, they're not going to run, Lem says. 
Despairing, Arya realizes that her dream was about and how she should have left them, let them steal her horses. Tom says, no hard feelings, right? They're not going to hurt her or anything. The word of a liar, Arya charges back. But Lem insists that the Brother Without Banners didn't lie. They never promised shit. Arya begs them to take her to River Run. They'll be rewarded. But Greenbeard states that they're taking Arya to Beric and Darien. Tom says Beric will do right by Arya, but Arya isn't sure. She asks them why she needs to see Beric. We bring them all our high-born captives, said Angai. Captive. Arya took a breath to still her soul. Calm as still water. She glanced at the outlaws and their horses and turned her horse's head. Now, quick as a snake, she thought, as she slammed her heels at the courser's flank. Right between Greenbeard and Jack B. Lucky, she flew and caught one glimpse of Gendry's startled face as the mare moved out of the way. And then she was in the open field and running. Arya rides hard without direction, knowing she could find the trident again. But the outlaws pursue her fast. She yells at her horse to run as swift as a deer, and Arya and the horse dash across fields. She turns and sees Angai and Harwin behind her, and she urges him out to go as fast as she possibly can. She leaps over dead trees, rides up hills, but Harwin and Angai stay with her. She keeps riding, crossing streams, going up another hill, going deeper into the woods. The woods slow Arya, and she knows she needs to get into the clear to give her castle-bred horse the ability to speed away. She keeps riding through the woods, getting caught by branches and freed, getting surprised by forest animals, crossing another stream, or was it the same stream? But then there's a field ahead, and she kicks her horse into a gallop. Run, she thought. Run for River Run. Run for home. Had she lost them? She took one quick look, and there was Harwin six yards back and gaining. No, she thought. No, he can't. Not him. It isn't fair. Both horses were lathered and flagging by the time he came up beside her, reached over, and grabbed her bridle. Ari was breathing hard herself. She knew the fight was done. You ride like a Northman, lady, Harwin said when he drawn her to the halt. When she when he'd drawn them to a halt. Your aunt was the same, Lady Lyanna, but my father was master of horse, remember? The look she gave him was full of her. I thought you were my father's man. Lord Edward's dead, lady. I belong to the Lightning Lord now, and to my brothers. Arya asks what brothers Harwin means, and Lem mentions Angai, Lem, Tom, Jack, and Greenbeard. They're not anti-Rob Stark per se, but they're also not fighting for Rob either. They're fighting for the small. They're fighting for the small folk now. Arya understands Harwin isn't Rob's man. Arya was a captive. She realizes that she should have stayed with Hot Pie. We could have taken the little boat and sailed up to River Run. She had been better off as Squab. No one would take Squab captive or Nan or Weasel or Arya the orphan boy. I was a wolf, she thought, but now I'm just some stupid little lady again. Will you ride back peaceful now? Harwin asked her, or must I tie you up and throw you across my horse? I'll ride peaceful, she said sullenly, for now. And that is the synopsis for A Storm of Swords Aria 1, 2, and 3. Yeah, that was a long synopsis, but I think it communicated the vast majority of important information from those three chapters. What do you think of these chapters, sir? Well, heroic fucking work doing all of those together, sir. Well done. Thanks. Um, yeah, we put we put these chapters together for the same reason we did Arya's first three chapters together in Clash. There's really only one episode's worth of material here. George is not quite as good at travelogue chapters as Tolkien, whose love of the natural world and all its detail really comes through. In these Arya chapters, I kind of feel like every description of every tree and stream goes on a paragraph longer than it should. I get that it's there for contrast with the more political chapters in King's Landing and River Run and Dragonstone, but it's pretty clear that's where George's heart lies, and this feels rote by comparison. That being said, there is still great stuff here, particularly regarding Arya herself and how she relates to the people around her, first with Gendry and Hot Pie, then with the Brotherhood, especially her old friend Harwin. Arya is caught in between, wanting a family again, a pack of her own, and wanting to just be a lone wolf. 
She's dealing with the same issues of freedom, identity, and trust as the other POVs in Storm of Swords, but from the ground level, which fits the Brotherhood's underfoot position relative to the noble houses. These chapters are a slow burn, but by the time Beric Dondarrion and Thoris of Mir show up, they become something truly special. Yeah, they, those chapters are amazing, man. And, and I'm just struck by the contrast and quality when it comes to these three Arya chapters. There is absolute magnificence. And there are parts where I'm kind of left bored, actually. Now, obviously, these are chapters written by George R. R. Martin, so I am grading on a huge curve, and I admit that up front. Of course. <laughs> I mean, what would you say if you were like looking at my chapters for my book in comparison? Like, Arya's story starts very slow here with Storm of Swords with, by walking horses through the woods, and, and I do think that George wants us to feel something of the tension of the pursuit, but he also knows that this is the first Arya chapter in A Storm of Swords, and she's also a major character. We've been with Arya Stark for two books, so readers know, and George knows that readers know, that he isn't going to kill Arya off in her first chapter. So he decides to move away from the tension towards the atmosphere and nature. And yeah, George tries hard, but it just didn't strike me as grand prose that swept me away. But then, bam, Arya too. We start similarly where I'm sort of bored by the BWB versus Gendry, Arya, and Hot Pie debate, but then George hits us with something we never expected. A reunion with Harwin. And man, I, I probably you could tell this, but that scene chokes me up so bad every single time I read it. That is a really well-earned emotional moment in the story, and it's powerful for reasons I'll unpack later. And then we're back to nature and the growth of the moss and the ride that goes on and on. And uh, I love Arya as a character. I love her chapters, but her movement through the early part of A Storm of Swords is slow riding. But at least it's punctuated by these moments of extraordinary emotional release. I think that's a great way of putting it. Even if maybe this, these chapters run on a little too long, the best moments of it stand out and are, are some of the most moving parts of her story. We pick up with her right where we left off in Clash of Kings. She has just escaped Harrenhal with Gendry and Hot Pie. This is about as dangerous a situation as I can imagine. These are three kids running for their lives across a countryside in the middle of a war, pursued by Roose Bolton and the Bloody Mummers, whose cruelty we saw on full display in Harrenhal. Murders, rapes, mutilations, they're dangerous even by the standard of this war. On top of that, Arya killed a guard to escape the castle. It was her first premeditated killing. And yet, she thinks, she's completely calm. No fear, no guilt. Part of this is just numbness, right? It's the same detachment from reality that allowed her to kill the guard in the first place. Arya in Clash of Kings just saw and heard too much to process. A certain survival instinct is kicking in. Her body is taking on what her brain no longer can. But at the same time Arya is letting go, she's also taking control. It's the culmination of everything she was taught by Sirio Farrell and Jock and Hagar, both of whose mantras flash in her mind's eye now. They both taught her how to shut her brain up and trust herself. It's equivalent to the battle fever that Jamie talked to Tyrion about. I think George does a great job of capturing the moment in which the repetition of education translates into raw, instinctive action. It feels primal for Arya, almost bestial. The wolves whose shadows she senses in the trees are her escorts, not her enemies. She's starting to think like them. The rain washes the blood clean, with no moral implication. All that matters is his sword is yours now, lashed across your back. Arya sees the world differently, and herself within it. She's a predator now, and one of the major tensions in her story is between what predator means in a natural sense and what it means in a human sense. Wolves hunt their food, and it wouldn't make much difference to tell them not to. 
But Hapai is terrified of Arya now. And why wouldn't he be? He just saw her kill a man and act like it was nothing at all. Arya did it to get out of Harrenhal along with her friends, away from the Bloody Mummers. She didn't have to bring Hot Pie along, so in her eyes that was an act of love, an act of family. As we'll see though, Hot Pie leaps at the first opportunity to get off the road, because he is not comfortable crossing the lines she has crossed. She has accepted the reality he cannot. There is death on all the roads. She means it literally, but also figuratively. No matter what they choose, every road ends the same way. That's what Sirio showed her in his last stand, and that's what Jock and Hagar showed her over and over again. You've done such an amazing job, I think, in this podcast of pointing out how secondary and minor characters are feeling and how it contrasts with what the point of view characters are acting and feeling the way they do. I think it's it's lovely because I think it's far too easy to take the perspective of Arya or really any other point of view character as the objective reality when a lot of signs point to how the POV characters is not doing so hot. I'm going to argue that Arya is not doing so hot here. She's not really reacting to killing someone the way a normal person, such as Hot Pie, is and would. Instead, she feels no fear at going through an extraordinarily dangerous part of the world as a child. Fearlessness, I think, in a lot of ways seems like a virtue to folks. But one of A Song of Ice and Fire's central themes is, you know, that there is a contrast between bravery and fearlessness. And the only way that a man can be brave is if he's afraid. Think back also to Catelyn's advice to Rob about who should lead the Northern Foot against Tywin Lannister right before Rob Stark sent Bruce Bolton to the Battle of the Green Fork and he moved on to River Run. The fearless great John was not the ideal candidate in that circumstance. Or even Bruce later in his Storm Storms talks about how his son Ramsay, Ramsay is fearless. Fearlessness is not a good trait for Arya to have going through the dark wood. Fear in some senses shapes people to respect danger. Of course, caving into fear is not good either, hence where Ned's bravery comes into fo- narrative focus. Arya, I think, at the start of A Storm of Swords, is unbalanced, and it's easy to understand why that's the case. She's, she's seen and committed a lot of shit. And I wouldn't argue that Arya is a sociopath here, but the emotional wounds of witnessing some of the worst atrocities of Westeros is showing up in Arya's personality in the worst possible way. Although, in this case, it is a way that is helping them to survive. Fearlessness in the face of grave danger is the way that it's exhibiting itself here in Arya's first few chapters, but by the end it's going to start manifesting itself in more and more violent ways as we progress in Arya's story in A Storm of Swords. If we think back to the beginning of the story, Ned, when Ned told Bran that a man can only be brave when he's afraid, he is suggesting, I think, the same thing you're suggesting, that, that fear is an important part of, of human responses to the world, even though sometimes it can paralyze and numb us, and of course it's just obviously unpleasant. You, you, you need it to respond to danger and then to overcome that danger to find courage within you. And Arya is now kind of being cut off from, from that instinct entirely. She's, she's looking at a world in which uh, death is so omnipresent that fear doesn't really make sense as a response because this is just normal. Hmm. They run past wolves devouring a deer and then they run through a burnt out village past the skeletons of everyone who was killed. And the distinction between those two kinds of death is starting to blur for Arya. She's starting to feel like uh, this is just how the world works, predator and prey. I I think you're talking really well about her kind of responding to those emotional wounds. But on a literal level, this is warging. That's what's going on Mm. here, right? Arya's Mm -hmm. thoughts are merging with her wolf, as we will see in her first full-on wolf dream. Nymeria is Arya's id given form, her unchecked fears and desires. She's rampaging across the countryside in her element only because Arya abandoned her cutting her off from the pack, as Arya has been cut off. 
that kind of isolation and being okay with that isolation is a powerful temptation for Arya. All the more so at the end of this book, when she has lost all her friends and seemingly all her family forever. So what if that's the source of her power, as it is for her wolf? What if Arya has to be cut off from the pack in order to flourish? She was the black sheep at Winterfell, after all. Arya's conscious mind has a goal. Get to Riverrun. Get back to family and safety and home, in contrast to her subconscious, which has no plan and just wants to hunt and kill. Her conscious mind is a highborn young lady who can read, an ability that seems as magical to Hot Pie as warging. George compares it to walking on water, like she's Jesus, like literacy is this messianic superpower, which is kind of how <laughs> Davos ends up feeling about it too. Through Nymeria's eyes, Arya sees the world as sensory input, the thing in itself to which she intuitively responds. Through her own eyes, she sees words, maps, cardinal directions, and the moss on the trees, because humans translate the natural world into approximations. For Arya, the word river run on the map is an escape from both the war and the food chain that she's experiencing, because beneath Ari and Weasel waits Arya Stark. She will spend the book trying and failing to get to River Run. As she thinks later on, it feels like she's been headed there for years. As her hope of getting home withers, so does the identity she wanted to reclaim there. In this chapter, she thinks that if Roos's soldiers catch up with them, maybe she could tell them who she is. Maybe they would keep her safe and take her home. But maybe not. Arya doesn't trust Roos Bolton, even though he's Rob's bannerman, and Arya herself helped him take Harrenhal from the Lannisters. Like when Jamie and company found the hanged women with the They Lay With Lions sign around their necks, we're seeing that the Northmen can easily become just as bad as the regime they're fighting against. And that is part of Arya's stark identity, whether she likes it or not. So instead, she thinks that uh, maybe her family, her pack, has become Gendry and Hot Pie. Gendry even says things along with her, like Jon Snow used to do. Maybe this is where she belongs. Yeah, and of course, Gendry kind of looks like Jon Snow a little bit too with his dark hair, dark long hair, and and just the kind of the way that he he talks and kind of his moody reality, which is which is what Jon Snow was a lot of the times in in Winterfell. And I think when we talk about this this theme of identity for Arya, back in Clash, we talked about Arya spends a lot of time adopting different identities: Ari, Weasel, Mouse, Not Nan, before finally settling on her identity as a wolf by the end of A Clash of Kings. What George explores in Arya's identity as a wolf is how it contains both the bad and the good. It's not simply that Arya is sewing a sigil onto her. It's not simply that Arya is just sewing a sigil onto her cloak and thinking that she's a wolf. She is just a Stark now, just like Illyria was talking about the Materian in the Dance of the Dragons. As a warg, Arya is living through Nymeria, experiencing a wolfish identity similar to her siblings and her cousin Jon Snow. Moreover, as we'll explore in Varamir's point of view in A Dance with Dragons come a few years, there is a bit of metamorphosis inherent in what working does to the wolf and the man, making the man more wolfish and the wolf also more mannish. The bad side is the violent impulses that come with being a wolf, the killing and such. On the good side, Arya has taken to the as Arya has taken to heart, the lone wolf dies, the pack survives, as she considers Hot Pie and Gendry as part of her pack now. She protects them and guides them using her education as a Stark and being raised as Arya Stark of Winterfell to help these city boys navigate these deep, dark woods. I think you, you hit on something really important there, is that the, the symbol of the wolf, the idea of the wolf, means two very different things for Arya. Because in her subconscious, it's connected to Nymeria, who is separate from the pack and is just rampaging around the countryside. But it's also the sigil of her family. It's also the emblem of her conscious mind's goal to return to the highborn, relatively refined life of Arya Stark. 
and everything that goes with that part of her Stark identity makes her different from her friends. She can ride easily, and they can't. She can read the map well enough to know how far they have to go. Hotby just assumes the first stream they see is the Trident. It's, it's like in, the, in Lord of the Rings when the Fellowship has just set out on their journey and the first mountain they see that looks kind of red in the, in the sunlight, Sam says, oh, I hope that's Mount Doom. Hope we're almost done. Because he has, <laughs> just has, has no context of the distance they have to go. And same with Hotby. And that naivete is part of what keeps Arya going, right? She feels responsible for them. She has to keep them safe. It's almost like Arya's trying to parent her friends. But she's still a kid, and she's still naive when it comes to her own limits. She's stubbornly insisting on riding without sleep for so long that she just passes out in the saddle. And Gendry forces her to stop and sleep. They're caring for each other. There's a little bit of kind of mutual vulnerability and trust there. And that's what's keeping her little family together, despite the differences in the background. We all need to eat and shit and sleep, and sometimes we just need to help each other do those things. In her dreams, though... The barriers between Arya and Nymeria fall completely. She becomes the wolf, as Bran has before her. Nymeria, like Arya, leads her smaller brothers, and like Arya, she experiences loss. One of the, one of the bloody mummers in pursuit of the kids stands his ground and fights when the wolves attack, and he kills two of Nymeria's followers. In her rage, she tears that dude to pieces. Back we go to the question of what kind of predator Arya is becoming. As Nymeria, warging into her, she has just saved her own life, as well as those of Gendry and Hotpie, from those people who were pursuing them. But in the process, she's becoming someone who exults in killing, who parades the corpses of her enemies as trophies. And what waits at the end of that road? Well, again, Arya said it herself, there is death on all the roads. Like Jock and Hagar, she's entering the service of the god of death. That's kind of what her, her list of people she wants dead has become, like this prayer. Yeah, and as a prayer, it takes on this religious connotation of exalting in death. There's almost a ceremonial aspect to what Nymeria is doing and what Arya is really doing in working through Nymeria, which is, it's fucking metal, I'll give you that much. And, and I love it a lot, but it is kind of, it is a lot. I So this this is the point where I, where I talk about Arya 1, where I, where I have to say that Arya 1 is kind of a weird chapter to me because... A lot of it is intentionally repetitive, and, and I do think that George does it intentionally in showing what what it's like to actually travel in Westeros and how slow and bogged down it is, and he wants us to make this feel like a lived-in world. But the problem is that it's not very interesting writing. Uh, you, you talked about it so well, about how George attempts to, to, to mime Tolkien and doesn't necessarily come out the, uh, the best at the other end of it. But then we get to the very end of the chapter and George R. R. Martin takes over and Tolkien fades. Because like I said, that warging sequence is metal and I love it. The way the rain runs off the fur of the wolves, the darkness, the tactics of the wolves as they attack the bloody mummers and the Dothraki horse lord standing his ground as he's brutally killed. That shit is awesome. So awesome that I wish that George had simply scrapped most of the published version of a, of a Storm of Swords Aria 1 and started with this dream sequence before going into the events from Aria 1. Were I George R. R. Martin, and I am not, or were I George R. R. Martin's <laughs> editor, I am also not Angrel either. I would have suggested that Aria's A Storm of Swords op- story opens with this working sequence and then fading into Aria 2. I, you know, you, you're talking so well about that kind of crazy wolfish imagery and how Arya is becoming very violent and is exulting in death but we we see something like that in Arya's first dance with dragons chap in Arya's first dance with dragons chapter with Arya working Nibiria and killing the shepherd and his dogs before we get to what's going on with Arya in Bravos and I love that opening line 
Her nights were lit by distant stars and the shimmer moonlight on snow. But every dawn, she woke to darkness. That's gorgeous writing. And God, I wish that we had gotten the end of Arya 1 as the start of her arc in A Storm of Swords. The method of chronicling Arya Gendry and Hoppy's journey through the woods in detail is understandable in George's part, but it's it's not my favorite bit of storytelling. Opinions may differ. I think George got a little bit too showy in his show-don't-tell formula and ramping up the detail to 11 on this journey, and that's not necessarily bad, but there are ways to communicate the thematic and character points more effectively. Having having Arya's A Storm of Swords story open in Media's Res to Nibiru's battle with the Bloody Mummers before moving onto the farm would have likely done the same amount of communication to show what the thematic aspects of what's happening to Arya and what's happening to her compatriots as well. How she's becoming more wolf-like and also have, would have communicated a bit more about the length of the journey so far. So how do you find a community again in this situation when war, murder, and superpowers have cut you off from your fellow man? Well, that's exactly the question Barak and his Brotherhood Without Banners have been facing, which makes them perfect supporting characters for Arya in this book. She hears them coming as she gathers vegetables from a dead man's garden. Life and death coming together. The kids are only saved from starvation because the guy who planted this garden died before harvest. Arya didn't kill old Pate, but she's benefiting from his death nonetheless, like Hot Pie and Gendry benefited from her killing the mummers. War makes you hard, or it makes you dead. It's very difficult to survive as a good person. It's hard enough to keep going at all. That's why Arya is so surprised to hear someone singing. She's afraid it's more the bloody mummers, but why would they be singing? It's so incongruous with the imagery of death and despair all around them. And that's the Brotherhood in a nutshell, singing in a graveyard, trying to bring some light back into a very dark world. But that doesn't mean that Arya can 100% trust them. Even before the Brotherhood take their horses and hold Arya for ransom, George introduces some ambiguity in the song itself. Like Mance's song about the Dornishman's wife, this song is about both romance and violence. I'll go off to Goldtown to see a fair maid, Tom sings, and then I'll steal a kiss with a point of my blade, I'll make her my love in the shade. Wait a minute. Is this a song about chivalry or rape? Well, it's both. Chivalric romance can become rape. And as Thoros would say about his comrades, war makes monsters of us all. It makes me think about Sandor during the Blackwater, demanding a romantic song from Sansa with a knife at her throat. George loves showing us an idealized image and then hinting at the realities lurking underneath. Arya jumps out to confront the men and we get our first look at the Brotherhood. Three guys, a mirror image of the three kids. Tom is like Hot Pie, who also loves to sing, as it turns out. Lem is like Gendry, a sullen, broad-chested bruiser. Angai is like Arya, he's both cynical and naive at the same time. This is what it looks like when innocence comes into contact with experience, when characters out of the stories and songs have to survive as mortal men in the middle of a devastating civil war. Lem is wearing a bright yellow cloak that makes him look like Big Bird, but it's got bloodstains on it. Angai looks young, almost childish like them, but he's got his arrows arranged like a fence, a barrier between them. Tom has his harp, but he's also armed to the teeth like the other two. It's like Arya's looking through a filter, Half fantasy, half reality. Half child, half adult. They call her a boy, she says she's a girl. It's all in between. As her opening move, Arya naturally tells them to keep walking or she'll kill them. And they take that about as seriously as you might expect. We know her as a warg and a budding assassin. They see only a little girl playing with a sword that's too big for her. Then again, Tom sees the Bolton sigil on Arya's chest and says, yeah, you're not really kids anymore if that's where you're coming from. Not if they serve the Leech Lord. 
Even without learning the details, Tom knows what we know. Arya is past innocence. And it's a, there's a heartbreaking little moment where, Tom, where uh, Tom is talking about, come join us at the end, there are friends there. And he's like, friends, what do you mean? And he asks, friends, have you forgotten what friends are? Arya faces the same question at the end of A Storm of Swords, like a mirror image when Sandor asks her, remember where the heart is? That's what Arya's losing. This is a conversation about trust, as with Jamie and Brienne. As Tom asks, can we be honest men with each other? The war makes that so hard. I'd forgotten until this read that no one brings up Beric Dondarrion until Harwin. So the first time through, we have no clue who these guys are. We might not trust them any more than Arya does. Even as they offer the kids food, they also take note of the horses. The one advantage the kids have over them. They call themselves Kingsmen, but Arya's pretty sure Kingsmen would have their own horses. It says so in Humpty Dumpty. These guys look more like outlaws. Of course, they're both. They're both Kingsmen and outlaws, as Arya is half out of childhood, half into a wolfskin. The war has shaped them into a paradox as it did her. For all their witty banter, they're dangerous men, as Sirio and Jockin were before them, her previous mentors. Angai proves that with an arrow shooting right past Arya's ear. And she thinks of her mentors in that moment, feeling that uh, she hadn't learned from them after all. She can't move that quick. But really, this proves that she did learn from them. Because all good mentors teach you how to learn, first and foremost. Sirio and Jockin, in different ways, advanced her critical thinking skills. Now she knows enough to know that she knows nothing. We'll come to your stupid inn, Arya concedes, but you walk in <laughs> front of us so we can kill you if you play us false. And that immediately fails, as the men just walk so slowly that the kids on horseback catch up with them. And George shows off such a strong command of tone here, lulling us out of the threat into something more idyllic. Hot Pie sings along with Tom, and Arya's astonished by it. She never knew Hot Pie had such a beautiful voice, for the same reason she was surprised to hear Tom singing. Who goes around singing songs when you're barely staying alive in a world at war? Angai shoots a duck and wonders wistfully if they can cook it with lemons, like the kind he ate in King's Landing, before the war came. That's the yearning for innocence that Arya is repressing, and that Hot Pie can't, which is why he gives his name away immediately. Even Arya, though, is enchanted by the inn, looking all homey and welcoming. Inside, everyone allows Sharna to bully them into action. She's the maternal figure here, treating everyone like her children, even her husband, who she just calls husband. The tone is whimsical and friendly. People are relaxing, talking about the stuff of life, they're talking about sex, they're talking about songs, they're gossiping back and forth. Maybe we can relax now? Well, Arya can't because she wants to steal that boat. And we can't either because we know this place. This is the same inn from Jamie too. That's the kneeling man sign out front, and that's the boat Jamie and company sailed in out of River Run. And I love how this plays out. Neither Jamie nor Arya knows the full story. Only the reader has the information to put it all together. We know that when Husband, the not an innkeep, is talking to the Brotherhood about the horses they were supposed to take back, he's talking about Jamie and company, confirming that Brienne was right not to trust him. They just barely dodged a bullet. Uh-oh, and now Arya is here. And speaking of horses, Tom wants to take the three horses that the kids took from Harrenhal. He pays three dragons for them, the same price Brienne paid for their horses, but Tom doesn't give them coins. He offers them an IOU. This smells like a scam, literal highway robbery, and I get why Arya objects. You're no kingsmen at all, you're just common thieves. But Tom is also right when he points out that if they really were just thieves, they would just take the horses without even the pretense of payment. Kingsmen do that all the time, especially in war. Arya's already seen that with the Mountains men, who started the war as outlaws, 
But by the time they burned down that village and killed Yorin and most of his charges, they were the king's men. Tom is telling the truth when he says that he and his comrades have a pressing need for those horses. They're fighting for the people, for the realm. Would you deny the king, he asks, meaning less Robert as he was, and more the idea of a king who enforces peace and protects people. Isn't that a cause worth giving up your horses for? After all, the Brotherhood are fighting the men who put Arya in this position, right? They're fighting the likes of Gregor and Vargo Hote. But in the process, they're robbing Arya of a way to get home. So what matters more, the overall cause or the individual? It's that same tension as the Jamie chapter. Is this in a refuge or a trap? It's like the village that Arya thinks about that when she was there with Arya and Hot Pie, when she was there with Hot Pie, Lamy, Gendry, and Weasel, when they paused the scout after the battle by the God's Eye. That village seemed so inviting. It even had a nice little trail of smoke coming out from one of the chimneys. So homey, yet so deadly, as Arya discovered that the village was occupied territory by the mountain and his boys. This in here, the end of the kneeling man, is the inverse of that village in Arya, in that Arya, Hot Pie, and Gendry are already in the inn, in the village, so to speak. And now danger comes from without. I think this is a really effective way of enhancing the tension because we've already seen what armed men do in the Riverlands. Arya can't know that the mountain is down in King's Landing getting ready to be deployed in ambush of Helmut Tallhart and Robert Glover. Hell, readers are not even going to know that until the next Tyrion chapter. Are these the mountain's men riding up to the inn? Of course, it isn't the mountain's men. It isn't Gregor Clegane. It's their sworn enemies, the Brothers of Banners, who have come up and are using this inn as a haunt to launch raids and ambushes in support of the small folk. And also, you know, to kind of rob people, lured into traps that the innkeeper who is not an innkeeper sets up for them. Still, as the men of the Brotherhood come into the inn, it's not clear which side they're on. There's a green beard Tyroshi, possibly the same Tyroshi who switched sides from Tywin to Rob after the Battle of Camps from a Game of Thrones. There's a wounded man, a crossbowman, a guy with a pot helm on who has one eye, and Harwin. Man, I, I, I think it came out in my synopsis, but I love this scene so much. Arya 1 has Arya acting very wolf-like, fearlessly, and having shed her childhood. But the presence of a beloved familiar figure for Arya banishes the wolf just for a moment. Harwin, it's me. You have to know me. You used to leave my pony when I was little. For a moment, a desperate moment, Arya doesn't have to pretend to be a different person. Doesn't have to pretend to be a different animal. She doesn't have to pretend to be a mouse. She can let go of Nymeria and be Arya Stark once again. That's powerful. And that's George's writing here. It's it's powerful because it dives deeply into the identity of these characters. Who is the little girl in the inn? A wolf, a mouse, a weasel, a ghost? Familiarity breaks all of those assumed identities away for a moment. Arya can be Arya, and she can be Arya of House Winterfell, the Hand's daughter. Harwin takes a knee in front of Arya, and it's like the narrative is communicating that ultimately we bow to our true self, and that Arya's name, her identity has meaning, if only for a single solitary moment. Oh, that's so well said. And it's, it's so difficult because even that comes at a cost. As Arya temporarily returns to her Stark identity, it means leaving behind Ari, orphan of the Riverlands, which means leaving behind Hot Pie. He wants nothing to do with River Run or the war. The Inn of the Kneeling Man may seem like a mere stopover to someone from Winterfell or Casterly Rock, like Jamie, but this is all Hot Pie has ever wanted. This cozy little hub like you might find in a Western or a Kung Fu movie. Food, drink, a roof over his head, and a chance to practice his craft. Why would he keep going? Just to be a sidekick on Arya's quest narrative? They're friends, even family, but they want different things. 
That doesn't make parting any easier. George tugs at our heartstrings without getting too sentimental. He shows us how Arya tamps down on her own feelings, thinking only that she'd gotten used to hot pie, despite how much he annoyed her. Ultimately, (laughs) she doesn't think of him as baggage. To love is to lose. Arya only realizes hot pie meant something to her after he's gone. Her only consolation is hanging out with Harwin again, the embodiment of her old life, the home that hot pie never had. He catches her and us up on what happened after Ned set him out. And I'll turn the battle talk over to you, sir. (laughs) Well, what happened, of course, was an ambush, ambush. The Starks and Beric got bushwhacked bad by Grigal Gane and his boys. Really, as the resident war nerd and not an actual nerd, I'm really kind of actually pissed off as I reread this chapter about how badly Beric and Darien got got by the mountain. It's a damn good thing that Beric and Darien can get resurrected and improve as a commander over and over again because... Boy, does he suck so bad at the start of his campaign. Before we get to that, though, there is something that stands out is in this chapter and about Harwin's descriptions and about what we know about Beric and his band. They're really young and inexperienced. Beric is 22 years old at the start of the Game of Thrones. Harwin is also pretty young. Really, the only guy who was a veteran of any previous fighting experience was Thoros Amir and maybe Raymond Derry, who was not old enough for the Trident, but may have been old enough to participate in the Greyjoy Rebellion. That lack of experience is what precipitated disaster at the Mummers Four. So let's th- so let's set the stage of the battle itself. They have 120 bros, Starks, Dundarians, and a smattering of others on this merry journey. They ride north to confront Grigal Gain. They reach the Mummers Four and they go splashing across the river like a bunch of dipshits. The group just seemed to ride from point A to point B without putting out riders out to get a sense of, of the land. There's no sense there was a rear guard either for, for defending the main column from attack from the rear. So they end up blundering into the Mummers' Ford, having no idea that the Mountain's men and the Lannisters are waiting for amb- waiting an ambush for them there. The army is in the river when they encounter the Lannisters on the far side of the Mummers' Ford. They fight, and then because they don't have a copy of their Ranger Handbook in front of them, shame on you, they try to retreat. <laughs> As every infantryman knows, the best way out of an ambush is not backwards, it's fucking through it, meaning that they should have charged the Lannister lines on the far side of the river instead of falling back. They retreat, but then they find that Gregor Clegane is waiting for them on the other side and cuts off their escape from the river. So Beric and his band are stranded in the river with many of them dying, including the Lords Bremen Derry, Lothar Mallory, and Gladden Wild. Interesting side note, and I think you would find this interesting, Evan, is that one of, and that a Micah minor character moment here is that Lord Gladden Wild may actually be a reference to Gladden Fields from Lord of the Rings, where a seal door was ambushed by mm-hmm. orcs from the Misty Mountains. Yeah. Which I think is a mm-hmm. Kind of interesting little George, like. That's the way that George loves to do his little his little references by naming characters after places and settings from Lord of the Rings. Beric himself is, quote-unquote, very badly wounded by Grigal Game himself as he gets impaled by the mountain and drops into the river. We'll later learn that Edric Dane, Beric's squire, pulled him from the river and guarded his body. And then, Micah, minor character moment number two, Alan of Winterfell rallies the survivors for a charge out of harm's way. Alan is kind of a cool character because he's the guy that always wanted to be a knight, and I think he never gets to he never gets the knighthood. We have to assume that he dies in this battle or shortly thereafter. But he does act like a knight. He's kind of like a Brienne type figure at a minor character level. They charge out of the ambush finally, but not before eighty of the hundred twenty men are dead. And Beric and Beric Dundarian very nearly dies in quotation marks from the lance that Gregor Clegane put into him. So very bad first showing for Beric Dundarian and the nascent brother without banners. In fact. I'd call Beric's performance, and this is a tactical, technical term that the military uses, a shit show at fuck factory levels of leadership in the battle. (laughs) 
The nice thing for Beric is that he has a get out of death free card on hand and things start to improve tactically for the Brother Without Banners as Beric learns more and more about how to win this type of war and how to be a guerrilla leader. But I think the first ingredient needed for improvement on the battlefield isn't found on the battlefield at all or in the military ranks or in the sword. I think the thing that really starts to generate some tactical and strategic successes for the Brother Without Banners is their political revolution, if you want to call it that, but their advancement of their political ideology. Yeah, arguably the most critical part of this backstory isn't even the battle. It's what happened after they heard that Robert and Ned were dead and Joffrey was sitting the Iron Throne. As Harwin said, this turned everything on its head. The changing politics of the realm transformed the legal meaning of their mission. Without doing anything differently, they went from king's men to outlaws overnight, enemies of the government that put them all together in the first place. Like Salador going semi-legit as Lord of Blackwater Bay, this is a perfect illustration of how the lines between official and unofficial can blur, especially in a civil war. Power resides where we believe it resides, which cuts both ways. On one hand, Beric's men could no longer count on joining up with a loyalist army to crush the Lannisters. Facing defeat, many wanted to surrender right there. But on the other hand, Robert's death made him something potentially more powerful than any one man. A martyr. A spark to light a fire. If Renly's ghost can win a battle, why can't Robert's ghost inspire an uprising? Beric's leadership really comes to the fore here, as he uses his charisma and courage to build a collective legend before building his own. This is who we are all together. They fought on against the odds, and Harwin says for every one of them that died, two more stepped up to take their place, and so they grew. It's tremendously inspirational stuff. Like Seven Samurai, it reminds us of the power of the downtrodden sticking together against their oppressors. There are more of us than them. The people of the Riverlands needed something to believe in, a way to become more than the sum of their parts, giving them the will to resist all the armies plaguing their lands, despite the cost of doing so. That's what Beric and the Brotherhood give them, a myth, an organizing principle for direct action. It's not so different from Mance Raider. The image of the romantic outlaw is, of course, on loan from Robin Hood, and I will talk more about that when we get to Arya IV. But George is also working in modern resistance movements, especially those from World War II, which we'll talk more about in Arya V. <laughs> in universe, the most relevant reference point is the Kingswood Brotherhood, which Tom sings about, driving the connection home. And that brotherhood also had the local peasants on their side, until Arthur Dane treated the small folk kindly, petitioning the Mad King on their behalf. That isolated the Kingswood Brotherhood and allowed the crown to defeat them. But there are no Arthur Danes working for the Lannister regime, so the people stick with Barracks boys, hence the villagers in this chapter who emerge to share what they have with the Brotherhood. So these guys now seem like a new pack for Arya, bridging her old and new lives. But it doesn't work out any more than it did with her and Hot Pie. Their interests just don't line up. Even as Harwin is telling Arya about how they've brought people together to fight back, Arya uses her old trick with the moss on the trees to realize they're not taking her to River Run. Her subconscious knows what's up as much as her conscious mind. She has a wolf dream in which Winterfell is no longer the solid, secure stone, but a mirage made of smoke, as Theon and then Ramsay left to it. She can't get back to it. For the outlaws, she's not a wolf. She's a squirrel, as Greenbeard says, a golden squirrel they must deliver to the Lightning Lord. That makes her feel small and powerless, and that's what Arya can't stand. That's how she felt as the Mountain's prisoner, watching him torture people to death. She would give anything for freedom. She tried to escape at the inn, breaking Lem's nose in the process, and she tries again here. 
we were talking earlier about uh, about the Brotherhood vis-a-vis the Mountain's Men, how the Brotherhood are kind of the inverse of Gregor's men. What they have in common for Arya is captivity. It's heartbreaking to read how hurt Arya is by Harwin, of all people, hunting her down and leading her back. He was her friend. He knew who she was. And now that intimacy has been betrayed because her name is precisely what makes her so valuable to them. She's alone all over again. Harwin tries to explain, I served your father, but your father's dead, and I don't serve Rob. He has lords and armies to serve him. The small folk have only us. It's an expansion on Tom's argument about taking their horses. The demands of the war mean we can't afford mercy. And now Arya, like her horse, is hard currency that the Brotherhood needs. It's a matter of faith for Harwin as well, a transformation. These are my brothers now, he says, like, uh, like Jesus says, you know, these, these, are my, these are my mother and brothers, this mm. is my family. And the spirituality reaches the surface when we see Beric Dondarrion again, of course. For Arya, though, it's like she's come crashing back down to earth. She doesn't understand Harwin's ideology. All she understands is that she is once again lacking a pack, with no way home. Yeah, and and I can understand Arya's perspective that it feels like a betrayal what Harwin is doing to her. But I kind of wonder, taking a a leaf from from your excellent playbook, about how Harwin is thinking here and whether Harwin and the surviving six Winterfell men don't feel like that they've been betrayed by the Starks first. Uh, A Hmm. little bit metaphorically, as I'll talk about. Because we're sympathetic to Rob, because he's fighting for his dead dad and because because his enemies are the villains of the story so far. And Rob himself is brave. He leads from the front. And as we'll see in just a one week's time, Rob is an immensely sympathetic character. But what has Rob Stark exactly done for the small folk who have suffered the raids of Gregory Kilgame, Amory Lorch, or the Bloody Mummers? Rob, at this point in the story, has nominal command over the Bloody Mummers. And yet, as we'll find in several Arya chapters down the line, these guys are still committing acts of atrocity under ostensible Stark command. Now, I'm not blaming Rob Stark exactly for the conduct of the Bloody Mumbers, and I have a feeling that Roose Bolton probably kept a lot of information from reaching Rob Stark's ears about what exactly he was doing in the Riverlands and at Hall. At the same time, when we did get news of Rob in the Westerlands from A Clash of Kings Catelyn V, people under his direct command and supervision, so we're not talking about people like Roose Bolton who are really separated out from Rob's command, but people like Mage Mormont, and uh, and the Glovers were raiding the farms and pastures of the small folk in the West. So in a way, that kind of seems like a betrayal of Ned Stark's command to Harwin to bring justice to the small folk for the atrocities and violence that they had suffered at the hands of the mountain. Arya becomes the casualty of that breakdown of the social contract between the rulers and the ruled here, a bargaining chip for Harwin to use in his own war. It's almost like the small folk are starting to reflect more of the nobility. The nobility have always taken prisoners and always are exchanging prisoners and in exchange for their own prisoners or in exchange for ransoms here. Ultimately, though, the breaking of the bonds of love, friendship, loyalty, and community is yet another consequence of what war is doing to Westeros as a whole. Yeah, I think that's... You, you make a great point that it's the Brotherhood can't really logically handle Arya any other way if they're to survive and, and, and carry on resisting the, the armies plaguing the Riverlands, but there's just no way for, for Arya to process that personally as anything but a betrayal. And that reflects what a difficult situation Arya is in as a noble-born person who is not enjoying the privileges and protections of being noble-born. 
So she's kind of stuck in the worst of both worlds in that she has, uh, she's you know, on the ground running for her life, starving a lot of the time, just like Hapai. But Hapai is going to be left alone by guys like this because he's not valuable for anything more than baking bread, which is what he gets to do. He gets, it's, it's, it's so sad. He, you know, Hapai gets his dream come true because his dream is so intimate and small and can be achieved. Hmm. And Arya's dream is so much bigger and more evanescent than that. And that's why she can't have it. And uh, yeah, that's just uh, that's beautiful stuff. It's beautiful and devastating, but I think it's it's great storytelling by George. So I think it's going to wrap us up for the depth portion of this episode. Switching over to foreshadowing groundwork. So in 2012, George R. R. Martin did a limited "Ask Me Anything" about a Song of Ice and Fire on the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit, a subreddit that I um, that, that I moderate from time to time. Um, I was not a moderator at that point in time, but he was asked a question about minor characters that we'll see again. And George has said that we will see Hot Pie again in The Winds of Winter. Maybe we're going to see Hot Pie when Arya returns to Westeros. I mean, if the show is any indication, Arya might first stop in the Riverlands before proceeding north. That seems like a logical place for Arya and Hot Pie to interact again. Yep, that, no, that makes total sense. And maybe it'll be a kind of... A bittersweet sign and symbol of how far she's come from from who she was when she knew him that she's heading home but she's also kind of distant from him because of all the experiences they've had while apart i could definitely see that working really well mm. harwin mentions in passing that one of the brotherhood keeps some very mean dogs and that is the mad huntsman who will meet in a couple aria chapters from now when they go to stony sept and we 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 see him at work and he's definitely a, a critical character to talk about kind of the moral ambiguity of the brotherhood so we'll definitely cover that Moral ambiguity is the, is the right term, and I think like when we get to them, catch up with them in Feast for Crows, these the Brotherhood starts to fracture. So you have the more noble oriented mm-hmm. BWB who want to maintain the the justice and ethos of Beric and Darien, and those that follow Stoneheart. But you can see the cracks in the Brotherhood Without Banners early in in A Storm of Swords with what's happening with the Mad Huntsman, which I think is an interesting, fascinating character in contrast to Beric and Darien, and to some of the more noble minded Brotherhood. I think George loves to have imbued that kind of ambiguity into these various factions and causes in Westeros. And the Brotherhood of Banners, as awesome as they are, they also are not 100% morally upright and blameless in some of the atrocities that are occurring in the Riverlands. One more bit of foreshadowing is that when the outlaws talk about how they doubt that Jamie could have escaped from Riverrun, there's this running thread in these Arya chapters of hearing about what's going on in the Jamie storyline, even crossing paths like they do at the inn. And yeah, the outlaws are right to doubt that Jamie could have escaped. In Arya's next chapter, they will learn that Catelyn set him free. And there's another emotional moment where everyone kind of doubts that. But of course, we know it's true. And that's just, again, a sign of, of how desperate people have gotten in the war. Yeah, desperation is something that has driven characters as far and wide as a BWB to stop becoming a force just to confront uh, just a, just a, a government sponsored force to to fight the Lannisters and also and, and more of a, a force to, to fight on behalf of the small folk. But again, it's also something we see in the individual lives of people. Catelyn, as we talked about at the end of A Clash of Kings and the start of A Storm of Swords, has set Jamie free in the desperate hope that she can retain, that she can get her daughters back. And that is, sadly is not going to be the case. Uh, for for Catelyn, she will never see her daughters again. But that desperation is something that is catching up with uh, with all these characters as things become more and more desperate in Westeros as the war worsens its hold and grip on the people. 
So moving into our theory and discussion portion of the episode, there's a specific theory I wanted to talk about this time around because we're being introduced to Lem Lemon Cloak. And there is the theory that he is secretly Richard Lawnmouth in disguise. And before we start talking about it, I just want to say all props to Lady Gwyn over at Radio Westeros because this theory is her baby. She wrote a great essay about it and has talked about it a lot. So she's, she's definitely the, the go-to on this one. Richard Lawnmouth was one of uh, Rhaegar Targaryen's squires. The other was Miles Mouton, who was killed by Robert at Stony Sept. There is no mention made in the backstory so far of what happened to Richard Lawnmouth, though. He was the Knight of Skulls and Kisses at the tourney at Harrenhal, described by that in Jojen and Mira's story as they tell it to Bran. Because the, the arms of Haas Lawnmouth are lips and skulls, so I think we can reasonably assume skulls and kisses. Yeah, that's Richard Lawnmouth. Specifically, uh, the sigil of Haslam Mouth is yellow skulls and the lips on a yellow background. And hey, lo and behold, here's Lem with his yellow cloak that keeps getting mentioned. Lem will tell the ghost of High Heart later that he dreams of kisses. And she later asks for a kiss from him, saying it'll be nicer than a kiss from Beric who tastes of bones. So we're seeing bones and kisses brought together, the Lawnmouth sigil, around Lem. Something I also think is... Uh, interesting in this area is how Arya describes Lem as having the look of a soldier, but there's never any, never any indication that he was one of the men sent out uh, with Beric Dondarrion by Ned. And you have all these other people in the Brotherhood, as we'll get to when we get to the Hollow Hill, coming forward to see, you know, I was a farmer, I was a brewer, I was a bricklayer before the war. We never get that with Lem. So who is this guy who seems to be a professional soldier but doesn't have a backstory we, we learn anything more about? I love this series, first of all, because and it's a joy to reread the series. I got the chance uh, earlier today to reread it, uh, Lady Lady Gwen's theory, and, and she writes so so well. I mean, I think um, a lot of folks know her from from her doing podcasts on Radio Westeros, but she's an excellent writer first and foremost, and you can see some of that when she wrote the theory back in in 2014, and she ups, updates the theory with some points from the World of Ice and Fire, which I'll get to in a moment. And when it comes to theories, what I, what I tend to do is I judge it by three criteria. Three criteria. Evidence from the books, one, whether the theory makes character sense, two, and whether it has any impact on their narrative, three. If it fits those three criteria, I like the theory. And I think this theory hits those waypoints. That's not to say it'll be 100% confirmed in The Winds of Winter, but I, I think there is something to be said for the theory. What I love about this theory is how it illustrates one of the larger themes of people who come out the other set of trauma as disappointed optimists. I also like that this theory... T- ties into the backstory, particularly it, it ties thematically with Jamie's vows and vows. They make you swear and swear and how that, that ties in with the present conflict. Richard Lawnmouth was likely one of Rhaegar's companions that rode with Rhaegar to retrieve land from the Riverlands, as we find out from the World of Ice and Fire. One compelling theory that's come out in recent years, which ties into this one, is the idea that Eris the Second Targaryen may have figured out that Lyanna was the Knight of the Laughing Tree, and Rhaegar raced to rescue her from Aerys's goons, bringing his best buds with him. As Rhaegar's squire, Lonmouth might may have thought he was doing a good deed, rescuing an innocent maiden from a tyrant, and he was cited in the World of Ice and Fire as being specifically anti-Aerys the Second Targaryen and being in the pro-Rhaegar faction. However, when Rhaegar later decided to help out his dad, Lonmouth may have ended up deciding that Rhaegar was really only interested in defending maidens who he wanted to have, have very much sex with, rather than safeguarding innocence from a monster. So he may have ended up turning Cloak back to Robert, a person who he was quite friendly with at the tourney of Harrenhal from Mira Reed's story and would definitely bring down Aerys II. But then the Battle of the Trine arrives and Richard Lamoth ends up fighting on the side of Robert, falling into the river and coming out a changed, broken man embittered by his beliefs that Rhaegar was really an agent of change. Come 16 years later, we run into Lamoth again, or Lem Lemoncloak again. 
but this time he's a shadow of himself, sad and angry. More than that, Richard Lonmouth has assumed a new identity, one ostensibly still loyal to Robert, but fighting for a different noble cause. At the same time as a failed optimist, he chose to live as a small folk rather than return to the Stormlands to live out a life of nobility. What I like about that aspect of it is that it is the inverse of what we see with the Kettleblacks and Shea from Tyrion's last chapter, where they're constantly climbing up to the higher reaches of nobility because that's where they think that safety is. But Richard Lonmouth has seen what it's like to be at the very top of the realm and how dangerous it is and how kind of poisonous it is. He might have decided he wanted to climb back down the rungs of power to live his life out as a small folk person. Maybe the life of, of nobility that Richard saw was too much for him. Maybe he saw the hypocrisy and bullshit and decided to forgo all that. And then maybe he saw the opportunity to fight in a good war again, helping the people in fighting against tyranny. And yet, there is something desperately sad about Lem Lemoncloak, regardless if he's Richard Lonmoth, when we meet up with him in a feast for crows. Because what is he wearing? What helmet is he wearing when Brienne sees him again? It's the hound's helm. And he is starting to resemble those noble oppressors that he was fighting against, whether he's Richard Lonmouth or Lem Lemoncloak just himself. I, I, I'm kind of riffing here, but I, but I do love the character aspects of this theory about how Richard Lonmouth might have become Lem Lemoncloak, why he's fighting with the Brother Without Banners, and why he turns ever more violent and dark as we get further and further into the story. And I don't think that Lem's, Lem's story is finished by far in, in, in The Song of Ice and Fire. I think we're definitely going to see him again in The Winds of Winter. I do think it is really interesting when you talk about the narrative pieces of why this would this would make sense and that we do have a character who could potentially identify Lem Lemoncloak. And that is the character, the point of view character of Jamie Lannister, who at the end of A Dance with Dragons is riding with Brienne of Tarth to a likely Brother Without Banners ambush. A Brother Without Banners, who is now run by Lady Stoneheart, and whose right-hand henchman is Lemon Lemoncloak. So if Jamie shows up and says, hey, I know you, you're... Richard Lonmouth or something like that, or I know you, then that's a signal for us as readers that perhaps Lady Gwen's theory is correct. I think it's true regardless. I love this theory. It's a great theory. It's awesome. Yeah, that's a great point. I hadn't thought of that, but Jamie, of course, uh, w- w- would know him, and Jamie rode against the Kingswood Brotherhoods, which is something I'm sure he's going to be thinking about when he comes into contact mm-hmm. with the Brotherhood Without Banners. And in the Kingswood Brotherhood, you had Simon Toyne, who was nobleborn. You had the Smiling Knight, who has not been identified, but, you know, he was some form of knight. And I remember the uh, Jamie's description of him as a uh, cruelty and chivalry all jumbled up into one, which I think describes Lem pretty well. And uh, probably, it actually describes Sandor pretty well uh, also. And uh, Lem is now wearing Sandor's helm. And, you know, Sandor himself kind of went through a process of, you know, out into the Riverlands and had to to change his name and face and is, is being reformed, you know, kind of monastically on the Quiet Isle. And maybe uh, Lem, a.k.a. Richard, is, is going through a version of that. But it also just fits a pattern in the story of these these uh, hangovers and holdovers from the Roberts Rebellion era. People like John Connington, also assumed to be dead, popping up again and having this... Uh, this real kind of anger and bitterness towards the world kind of moving on from them and a desire to to reshape things that I think is very relatable, but also potentially dreadful in terms of where it leads them. So I could I could definitely see uh, Richard, a.k.a. Lem, uh, becoming a great example of that. I think that'll be awesome if that ends up being the case, that, that Lem Lemoncloak is Richard Lonmouth. And so we'll we'll wait to see that from when the Windsor comes out eventually. But I think that's going to wrap us up for this analysis of A Storm of Swords, Aria 1, 2, and 3. As always, thank you so much for listening, and thank you to our patrons for supporting us. 
If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is brendabeefish.substack.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Relu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers. Lady of a Thousand Words. Septon Maribald, the Shoeless Sage. Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood. Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets. Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood. Sir Way, of course. Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore. Lord Sam Kay. Wisdom Benjicut, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bool and De Morgan. Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping. Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies. Hodinus, a prostitute. Lady Silverwing, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light. Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn. Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands. Lord Young of the Ghostwoods. Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil. Sir Will of the Anarcho Syndicalist Commune. Lord Clay. Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stone Haven, Defender of Dunatar Castle. Septon T Bone, the Low Septon. Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids. Lady Veronica, who was abandoned the orphans at the end of the crossroads to become the Queen of Memes. Lady Danielle of House Lannister. Titanium Pirate. Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs. Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles. Random, Fierce Protector of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things. Sir, Lady, Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye. Lord Peter, not Peter, Drinker of Strong Wine and Lord Commander of the Flat Planeto Society. Lady of Rainy Afternoons. James of House Keen, Lord of the Forest City, Admiral of the Cuyahoga, and Warden of the Western Reserve, Lady Ken of House Motown, Goddess of Sips and Wine, and Sir Andrew of H-Town. Thank you so much, as always, for your support, our High Lord and Lady Patrons. Absolutely. Thank you, folks, so much for your support. Every single month it means the world to us. So, join us next week for a Storm of Swords Catlin 2, in which we will maybe try not to make this a two-part episode, but this episode's, you know, Catlin 2 is a pretty easy chapter, right? Rob Stark returns to River Run in triumph with no complications whatsoever for stemming from his Westerlands campaign, right? Like early in that chapter, Catlin says Rob has returned covered in victory, and then the chapter gets more and more and more depressing from there. Perfect structure in it. Uh, one hell of a chapter that we will try to encompass in one episode. But uh, yeah, it's the opposite of these Arya chapters. We're combining multiple chapters into one episode. Catalan 2 stands all on its own. Oh man, I cannot wait for to get back into Catalan's headspace. Ah, so again, thank you so much for listening. Thank you to our patrons for supporting us. We'll see you next week for Storm of Swords, Catalan 2.